list up somewhere. Um, thanks uh, very much. Thanks to Rick and thanks to the Mirshan Center for inviting me here. Uh, it is a great opportunity for me to work out some material that is in really quite fresh. Most of what I'm giving you here is the results of just a few weeks I spent uh, in Rome and Perugia in central Italy uh, in October and early November. So this is um, hot off the presses, as it were. The title, you'll notice, is um, rather a bland one. I was sort of um, perhaps leaving, I don't know, unconsciously or not leaving out the historical element, lest that I scare anyone away uh, who wasn't interested in things historical. I suppose that there's kind of a balance here between the free food and the, uh, and the, hist the history lesson. So I'm, um, I'm hoping that this, uh, as Rick says, will strike some resonant chords. I'm particularly interested, though, from the point of view of what the Marishan Center does uh, to have some feedback and to seek areas of relevance in the more modern world uh, with the world that I'm going to describe here. Uh, so I will read this. Um, I, I usually like to give papers that are just outlines rather than papers, but um, since I was sort of working out some ideas as I went, I thought it was better to, to write this stuff down. So I apologize sort of in advance for the, the reading quality of this paper. I personally think reading papers is probably the worst way to convey information that's ever been invented. But uh, that aside, I'll try and get through it as fast as I can. Well, not fast as I can, but as thoroughly as I can. In any case, this is called State Responses to the Collapse of Civic Order, uh, and this is my Italian example. The years after 1560 saw a remarkable increase in violence throughout Italy, but especially in that central mini-nation known as the Papal States. Here the return of thousands of soldiers, here are some soldiers in fact returning, demobilized after the peace of Castro Cambresis in 1559, coincided with and augmented an already widespread culture of clan vendetta and baronial rebellion. The result was a level of violence and disorder that between the 1570s and 1590s seemed at time close to causing the collapse of civil society and the state itself. Um, I really apologize for the low tech of this. I'm, uh, I'm not quite uh, over my, my residue, residual technophobia to give you this on, as it should be done, I suppose, on PowerPoint. In any case, here, of course, are the papal states in the center of the chocolate-covered area uh, in the middle of Italy. Although comprehensive figures of this violence are hard to come by, I could note, for example, that in the mid-1580s, the provincial capital of Perugia, which is right here, um, which for some reason has a painter's palette next to it, uh, or a telephone dial, and its immediate countryside apparently suffered an annual murder rate on the order of 12 per thousand. That's nearly 50 times the rate of Washington, D.C., which is currently the leader of homicides among American cities. Much of this violence could be linked to brigandage, which was both endemic in this region and sharply on the rise during the 16th century. By the 1560s, bandits were operating throughout the Papal States almost at will, sometimes as virtual armies numbering a thousand or more men, uh, and sometimes as small bands of highway robbers um, attacking travelers that they could find on their way. Here's such an event. Their, quote, various and enormous crimes were said to, quote, continually worry and disturb the quiet and peaceful lives of the subjects of this realm. And their robbing and looting, quote, prevented the free commerce of merchants and other men whose trade preserves this land. And here's probably not too discernible, but a, a, a uh, 17th century illustration of such an attack on passing merchants. More directly important, however, was that in their violent resistance to authority, bandits also provided a focus and a model for all those who sought to undermine the centralizing state, 
whether they were mere robbers, disaffected feudatories, or covetous neighboring nations. In this paper, I'm not especially concerned with the sociological roots of this bandit violence. That's a topic that's already provided fertile ground for scholars from Braudel and Hobsbawm up to present-day social scientists like Anton Bloch and David Riches. Also, that seems to me less appropriate for this particular venue. Instead, I would like to examine the reactions on the part of the state and its agents as they attempted to define and curb brigandage. It is especially in this arena that we can trace the dynamics of state versus private violence at a time when the spheres of each were still hotly contested. While posing the real threat of widespread social disintegration in its own right, this wave of brigandage also provided the papal government with opportunities to expand and consolidate its powers, sometimes in novel and unexpected ways. States and bandits are and always have been closely intertwined, making a brigandage as much a political as an economic or social reality. And I think the political side has not been uh, really much attended to by uh, social scientists over time. In papal Rome, as elsewhere in early modern Italy, it could be said that the state contributed at least as much to the creation of brigandage as to its elimination, and indeed often seemed to be set on creating and exterminating bandits with the very same policies. Fundamentally, bandits were, after all, banditi in Italian, or band men. And the practice of banishing miscreants and political malcontents from their native towns had been customary as far back as the communal era in Italy, that is, back to the 12th and 13th century. By the later 16th century, the backwoods were full of such fugitives, many of whom had fled from home after committing a crime, rather than turn themselves into a legal system whose verdicts were depressingly and predictably harsh for those who lacked special pull with the ruling powers. Many of these men fled because of a revenge killing, they had done, a revenge killing they had done on a part of an endless, the endless cycles of clan vendetta that roiled both city and village life during these years. Others took off after lesser crimes, but once arrived at the macchia, as it was called, the bush, uh, the, the backwoods, they often turned to robbery and murder simply in order to survive. For the papal authorities, both sorts were declared in rebellion and guilty of lese majeste. Such fugitives were declared outlaws in contumacia, that is, in absentia. They don't show up, they're automatically declared in rebellion. And a price was put on their head, usually dead or alive. Actually, in Italian, you say alive or dead, but it amounts to the same thing. For their, quote, quarrels, crimes, outrages, robberies, murders, and other insolences, unquote. They were stripped of their civil status, that's being declared in rebellion, along with their, quote, privileges, recognitions, freedoms, concessions, exemptions, royal and personal immunities, all possible noble titles and holdings, offices, pensions, all possible ecclesiastical benefices and advantages, and also any soever fiefs and emoluments. These are obviously the higher quality brigands. Those who are just ordinary Joes uh, aren't stripped of anything because they don't have anything. The ease, ease with which the various papal representatives were able to banish their subjects initially and their subsequent willingness to declare them in rebellion is astonishing. For example, in the early 1580s, it was said that the town of Perugia, once again, which had about 15,000 inhabitants, which made it a fairly big city for the times, had produced no fewer than 4,000 men between who were banned or condemned. That is, half the men, essentially, of the town. Without their property and de deprived of an urban existence, the urban existence that was so important a social element uh, in the lives of these Italians brought up in cities, as it is to this day, these men went into the Machia enraged at all their enemies, or so it was said, but in particular at the governing authorities who had sent them in the first place out into permanent exile and misery. Rather than admit to the state's own role in fostering and diffusing brigandage, 
Many papal authorities down in Rome um, of, of the later 1500s preferred to blame the problem on a specific and technological cause. This cause was the wheel-lock musket. Here are some nice pictures of ones which would fetch pretty penny today, I suppose. Um, that was the new form of firearm that had begun replacing the matchlock in the mid-century. The latter, the matchlock, you see here, which I have far more pictures actually than the wheel lock. Uh, here's a matchlock uh, being loaded. Um, had established itself as early as the 1520s as a vital part of a vital weapon for the infantry, but was nevertheless slow and clumsy by nature. Here's a, a four-shot illustration of this is English, but it gives you the idea of how to uh, load, aim, and fire your matchlock. It was, in, as you can sort of see here, virtually a handheld cannon. Uh, and had to be supported on a mount and set off with a slow match. Here's a fellow shooting it off on a mount. Uh, here is a very rare photograph from the mid-17th century of someone. <laughs> someone You can see here, actually, a, uh, the match that one would use, and you can imagine sort of the difficulty uh, in maintaining this object. The wheel lock, by contrast, with its spinning wheel, which is concealed inside the, uh, the body of the gun, uh, that struck off an iron pyrite sparking stone, did away with the match, gone, allowing the shooter to carry his weapon ready reloaded in any weather, in the rain, for example. The development of smaller, lighter wheel locks, here are, so you can see the incredible shrinking wheel lock here, um, and you can see this is the wheel, of course, is in this area right here, there's the striking stone, um, was for, which was first called the, uh, which were first called the archibugi corti, the short arquebus, then the terzetta, then the pistoletti, would also make it possible to carry the weapon primed and concealed, making this the ideal arm, in fact, the ideal weapon for anyone who was going out looking for trouble. By the 1570s, as one observer lamented, it had become unthinkable to settle, quote, any offense, however trivial, with any sort of other weapon any other sort of weapon, such that the sword and the weapons that used to be nobly employed in such cases have by now fallen almost into oblivion. In the hands of even the meanest brigand, and I mean that meanest in both senses, the weapon was frighteningly effective, combining the portability and speed of a dagger or sword with the range of the matchlock, such that, quote, it would be difficult to find anyone attacked with a wheel lock who did not end up wounded or at least stopped. When the papal police, or known as the sbiri, famously, saw a man coming along the road, and I found such cases as this uh, in the uh, trial records, saw a man coming along the road loaded, up, loaded down with such weapons. You usually have several wheel locks stuck in your belts, uh, sort of like, anybody here see um, um, Pirates of the Caribbean? Kind of like that. Uh, loaded with wheel locks, uh, they tended to, in fact, forget their O's, forget their... Um, forget uh, the, the horses they were riding, the goods they were carrying, even the prisoners they were conveying, and just bolt, uh, run for cover. In that sense, we could call the wheel lock the great equalizer, but we might also call it the weapon of mass destruction of the 1570s and 1580s. It was an instrument so lethal and widespread that, quote, on every side one hears only the blows of arquebus shots, either in the scrub, the macchia, or in the woods, and, or even in the public streets. And meanwhile, there isn't any place or any sort of person who is safe, since entering the countryside there isn't a cattle drover or shepherd who doesn't have a wheel lock over his shoulder. It's funny, the wheel lock is sort of a forgotten instrument in a way. It's sort of, it's, I mean, people who think about arms, and believe me, I don't. This is not what I usually do. But between the two sorts of worlds of the matchlock and the flintlock, the wheel lock sort of sits there 
for a hundred years. But at the time it made its appearance, it was fairly terrifying, actually, for what it implied socially uh, and politically. In the later 1570s, in fact, in response to this, the papal authorities took what we could call a Luddite approach uh, to the whole wheel lock problem and decided that, despite the weapon's obvious superiority to the match lock, they would roll back the forces of progress and ban wheel locks entirely from the states of the church. I'll give you another close-up shot of the states of the church in all of their glory, as they were divided up into their sub-states. Anyone owning such a weapon had to surrender to the local police, who would pull off and destroy the wheel. Foreign travelers were to remove the wheels from their guns uh, at the borders, coming into the Papal States, and keep them separate while on Papal territory. Guns, wheels. Even the soldiers of the Pope's army were to return to the use of matchlocks. And not only. It was also ordered that, quote, from now on, neither master nor craftsman should dare to make wheel locks or adapt matchlocks or other similar sorts of arquebuses with the wheels. And, of course, merchants, all sorts of merchants, were forbidden from importing such weapons into the country. These laws, as such laws often were, were backed up with some of the most stringent penalties. Five years in the galleys for an offending craftsman who made such a gun, loss of the right hand for anyone caught in town with a wheel lock, and death without appeal if the wheel lock were loaded or of concealable dimensions, that is, quote, under three palms in length. Yet even such ferocity apparently had little effect. The army kept its wheel locks. All the Italian princes, after all, might applaud taking the wheel locks out of the hands of soldiers in theory. In fact, it was just that no one wanted to be the first to do it. Moreover, as many a later government has discovered, trying to hold back new technology through the law only drives such advances underground. Uh, sort of stem cell research, that kind of thing, uh, into the hands of a new breed of criminals, you can call them criminals, who are desperate and wily enough to profit from the advantages that the technology offers. There were, in fact, plenty of watchmakers out there willing to make the mechanisms on the sly, and no end to brigands who were already, after all, condemned for other capital crimes, and thus, thus saw nothing to lose but their lives, and a great deal to gain by toting a wheel lock. In fact, by the early 1580s, the steam seems to have gone out of this movement to turn back the technological clock. And the authorities in Rome were left with what was essentially their fallback position for eliminating brigand violence, that of eliminating all the brigands. Under a succession of popes, but in particular during the pontificate of Sixtus V, you of course know when that was, no, 1585 to 1590, Rome unleashed a volley of repressive measures against these, quote, bandits, outlaws, delinquents, evildoers, and other villains. It was a campaign that reveals, I think, a great deal about how state-sponsored violence was conceived and applied during what were, not coincidentally, the, some of the most important years of state formation in early modern Italy. And this coincidence of state violence and state formation uh, have to be kept in mind. One element is, and fundamental to it, is the idea of, the fundamental to the whole states, the state's need to deal with brigands was determining who actually was a brigand. And this wasn't so easy considering the vast numbers of vagabonds, demob soldiers, and itinerant merchants who wandered through the Papal States. Since these outlaws had by definition been pushed to the social and geographic margins of society, it was necessary to find some way to plug the political and bureaucratic cracks through which they were so adept at slipping. This was a learning process for the Papal administrators, one that inevitably produced a more complex and pervasive bureaucracy both to monitor society from within the Papal States and to better regulate relations between the papacy and Italian neighbors like Florence and Naples. That's Naples in the south, Florence up there. 
certainly was necessary to establish reliable communications with adjoining states, to create a kind of brigand hotline uh, that could spread the word when a band of outlaws had decided to decamp and cross borders to escape the attentions of a local militia. Such cooperation, however, was only really possible if rulers were willing to announce their own covert support of such bandit gangs, and this was a long time coming. Quietly encouraging local robber barons or disaffected feudatories to stir up trouble along border regions and on the other side of the border was an old custom for the rulers of these Italian statelets, a way to keep their own neighbors on edge and distracted without risking the blame or receiving the blame for any overt aggression on their part. By the 1570s and 1580s, however, brigand bands had become widespread and destructive enough that even old rivals like Naples and the papacy were willing to unite their forces against the threat. It still took considerable effort and expense to muster the troops needed to track down and wipe out armed bands, offering numbering hundreds of horsemen, especially among the wild and mountainous lands in the southern papal states. That is around around here, Sabina on down, but also in the area known as the marches up in the north. Whole armies, who were often at this time recruited from the island of Corsica, uh, were sent out several times a year, paid for, let's see, army shot, marching with their matchlocks, Um, were sent out several times a year, paid for it by the papacy and by local taxes. Sometimes they succeeded in forcing one bandit gang or another into a pitched battle, but the results were not always decisive. When attacked, brigand bands could prove quite good at defending themselves. If they were hopelessly outgunned, they might also try to simply disperse and fade into the Machia in small groups. In fact, just capturing three or four outlaws on the loose could also be tricky, since individuals walking or riding along a country road could be hard to positively identify for what they were. Why? Well, in the 16th century, very few Italian workers or peasants even had last names. And in the hands of, in clever hands, the whole notion of personal identity, as Natalie Davis has famously shown, could be shifting and mutable uh, in her book and movie, The Return of Martin Guerre. As one edict complained, quote, many of these wicked ones with various and diverse means go passing, anonym- passing by anonymously, also with clothes that are different from their usual ones and other tricks, such that they escape their deserved punishment. To overcome this problem, it became net customary by the 1560s to insist that all travelers around the Papal States be equipped with a bolletino or pass, signed by the governor or captain of the guard, generally from their city of origin. Without his bolletino, a man was to be refused food, drink, and lodging by any innkeeper, castellan, or peasant, quote, even if he were dressed as a friar, priest, or capuchin, which gives you some idea of what they were, what their clothes that they were wearing. By the 1580s, the pass system was stiffened still further, and anyone on the road also had to furnish himself beforehand with a descriptive fede, or testimonial, that would, quote, attest that he is not bandito or incontumacho in the place where he comes from and where he wants to go, and also attest to his social status, and passing without said receipt, he should be taken, held, and put in prison. Forcing travelers to carry identity papers that not only established their names, but also their places of origin, status, family connections, purpose for traveling, and even the quality of their character, was an increasingly common custom in 16th century Italy. And it helps mark the ever more intrusive state bureaucracies of this era. But by attesting to the personal probity and the focused purpose of those who held them, these fedi also underscored, as if that were really necessary, the corresponding baseness, the meanness of the brigands themselves. 
Those who did not have this testimony to their character obviously lacked the character. <clears throat> it was a moral dimension made explicit in the language to which the state waged its anti-brigand crusade, constantly hammering in its edicts on these outlaws as, quote, wretches, evildoers, hoodlums, sad ones, delinquents, murderers, cursed men, hired killers, faithless ones, enemies of God. <clears throat> these were not men, in other words, but a disease. Uh, indeed, the papal authorities described them in terms of impurity and transgression. They often referred to, the, to a plague of bandits that infested the land, uh, men who violated and disturbed the public tranquility. I was interested in these verbal assaults because they seemed to me to amount to more than just moral censure uh, aimed at men who deserved punishment. They also represented, I think, a linguistic shift towards demonization and dehumanization that we in the 20th century, or in the 21st century, uh, have come to recognize as almost a precondition for the unleashing of public violence against the target group. Once stripped of their humanity, brigands could be all the more easily cut off and segregated from the deep networks of kin, neighbors, and allies that made their survival possible, and in which, like Che Guevara's revolutionaries, they swam like fish in the sea. In their campaign against brigands, the papal authorities certainly recognized the utility of this strategy, even as they also recognized that the fundamentally social nature of brigandage required a sociological response to suppress it. Their response centered on the families of these banned men, effectively enlarging on a practice that had been followed for centuries by Italian governments. The assumption, in other words, that an outlaw on the run would seek help from his kin was no doubt based on ample experience. But there was a further and I think more corrosive assumption here at work as well. Many held that banditry, even more than other forms of criminal behavior, were, was essentially in the blood, uh, and that a brigand's near relatives, especially his brothers, could be presumed guilty of, or at least sympathetic to, naturally sympathetic to, outlawry simply by the force of kinship. No doubt there was a good deal of experiential evidence for this assumption as well. Enough so that the authorities in Rome were willing to extend such pre presumed familial culpability to the third degree of relationship, that is, to second cousins, or even beyond. Ties of marriage were held to be as polluting as ties of blood. And it was an implicit guilt that also readily applied to female family members, who were presumed willing to devote all their nurturing instincts to the needs of outlaw relatives on the run. For this reason, family members were routinely ordered to turn in their bandit relations or at least reveal the hiding places they were assumed to know about. At the very least, authorities demanded that subjects saw to it that their brigand relations, quote, are kicked out of the papal states for a distance of 30 miles beyond the borders. Well, I don't have that anymore. 30 miles beyond the borders and to see to it that they must not come back again nor come near in any way, even if they have not committed other newer crimes, unquote. With the more persistent and pernicious bandits, though, even this response was not enough to palliate the presumption of associative and collaborative guilt. Under Sixtus V, for example, were instituted policies that might seem more in line with 20th century notions of ethnic cleansing. Relatives of certain notorious bandits, I should go back to this map, again, relatives uh, chosen to the third degree, and given the third degree, I suppose, chosen to the, to the third degree, uh, were rounded up from their homes in the area around Monte Sabina, around here, uh, and sent off to two fortified towns about 50 or 60 kilometers away, about here, uh, and they're locked up uh, essentially in what were detention centers. Uh, once there, quote, they were not to go out, neither during the day or, nor at night, until said bandits, their relatives, end up dead or alive in the hands of the court, the court being the, the, um, the judicial court. 
The detainees were moreover to report every day to the local authorities who were, however, apparently not given any instructions as to how these uprooted souls were supposed to find food or lodging during their period of captivity. The state's campaign to segregate outlaws from their blood relations was also extended to breaking whatever ties they might have maintained or tried to maintain with all others who lived around them. This, is especially, this was true throughout the papal domains, but especially so in the mountain villages that were often the original homes and sometimes the eventual redoubts uh, of many brigands. As seen from Rome, there was not much difference between these rustic locals, whether or not they were law-abiding, and their bandit neighbors. There's always this kind of view from the center to the periphery and the notion that on the periphery people are wild, uncontrolled, unprincipled. It was assumed that fear, coercion, common interests, and a general suspension of authority was enough to induce many to help outlaws on the run. Whatever their motives, and whether they did so willingly or not, those who aided bandits were accused by those in Rome of being worse than the brigands themselves. Quote, it's a clear thing, as one edict put it, that the receivers and helpers of said villains are the principal cause of every evil, and without them, those wicked ones would not survive long nor flee their rightful punishment. Central to their campaign against brigandage was the need for papal authorities to break this connection, and to do so, they firmly forbade locals, quote, to give the bandits food, drink, a place to sleep, to talk with them or receive letters from them or messages or emissaries, or in any way to have dealings or conversations with them, nor even give them any other help, advice, or favor, either by letter or by mouth, however minimal. As with all the punitive elements of the state's anti-brigand campaign, the reprisal specified for these fautori e recettori, these are what they call the, the sort of helpers and aiders of brigands, were harsh in the extreme. With a kind of tit-for-tat, those who gave any aid to outlaws, singly or in a gang, uh, were to get the same as the brigands themselves. That is, if one helped a brigand who was under capital ban, he or she was to be executed, no excuses. If the outlaws were under a lesser ban, though not many of them were, the offending Samaritan could be sent to the galleys or banished as was appropriate. In either case, though, householders could expect to see their property seized by the state, as well as, as with many a brigand, their own relatives might be held liable and banished in turn. The authorities were willing to allow that some peasants or town folks may have given aid to outlaws under duress, their houses occupied by a passing band, their food and aid taken at the point of a wheel lock. Still, such apparently was its suspicion of conniving and dissembling locals that Rome insisted that homeowners could only escape the assumption of complicity if they were able to prove, quote, that they gave them aid for fear of violence and to avoid the manifest and immediate danger to life. Even proof of simple coercion was not enough, however, unless a villager could also demonstrate that even while this ordeal was underway, quote, an immediate attempt had been made to come or send notice to the court. Uh, this reminds me of the, uh, what is it, the, the Humphrey Bogart movie, High Sierra, I think it was, where he's, uh, he's got these people trapped. They're trying to figure out how in the hell would they send somebody to ask for help. I don't know. Anyway, that's the idea. This insistence that local villagers who failed to rebuff brigands would consequently be counted as brigands themselves was only one of many ways that the papacy tried to coerce its subjects into taking active part in the state's anti-brigand crusade. In a very real sense, Rome aimed at outsourcing its police work, assigning to locals the tasks of peacekeeping that in many other times and places had been traditionally the business of authorities and their minions. This drafting of civilian help went well beyond requiring village, villagers to deny brigands aid, though. For Rome also required their active resistance to and indeed pursuit of all outlaws that came their way. 
This may seem somewhat surprising, considering that these locals were, as a rule, armed with nothing more than poles, farm implements, or, by law, no guns other than matchlocks, that they were expected to set themselves against men who were fairly bristling with knives, swords, and the latest in firearm technology. Nevertheless, it seems to have been the policy of the papal authorities, especially after 1570, to insist on just this. At the first sight or rumor of bandits in the neighborhood, bandits, the toxin was to be wrung, the, military, the local militia, which had supposedly already been organized and trained under one or more captains, was expected not just to repel brigands from their own village, but also to, quote, raise the cry, advise those nearby with other signs, smoke in the daytime, fire at night, muster themselves and move hastily against said wicked ones, making every effort to capture them, dead or alive, with also following them outside the local jurisdiction or territory without ever abandoning their chase until their final extermination. I notice in the Italian it doesn't say whose final extermination, but anyway, we can assume it's supposed to be the brigands. To back up their requirements, the authorities in Rome threatened slackers and cowards with fines and even sentences to the galleys, and they would, quote, not admit the excuse of either ignorance nor of a multitude of brigands nor any other pretext. Yet they also offered some carrot along with the stick. Those who successfully captured or killed bandits, whether as individuals or as part of a concerted village action, could expect rewards. For the most notorious or dangerous outlaws, the real gang leaders, the real big names, this could involve a large cash payment. Though this was not the case with your more run-of-the-mill brigand. Rather than actual money, those who took out such small timers would instead get the right, quote, to nominate and insure a bandit. Unquote. meaning that they could choose another outlaw banned for, quote, similar or lesser crimes, and the state would pardon him. Such a policy, which had the advantage for Rome of costing nothing, was obviously also based on the premise that these villagers were themselves fairly likely to know, or be related to, brigands, and therefore have someone in mind ready to be pardoned. If, however, someone turned in or killed a brigand who had no such connection, presumably he could then offer to sell his pardon to someone who did. The beauty of this policy was that it could be extended, and generally was, to include the outlaws themselves. And here is such a, uh, an edict, a bando, for the nomination uh, and the talia, that is the reward, <coughs> against bandits and other wicked ones. <coughs> Facinarosi. Um, brigands could, in fact, the, the policy could be extended to the brigands who could turn in or kill another brigand and get a pardon. And this is sort of a, a list of all the all the different ways, different levels of brigands. If you kill this one and you get this, and if he's higher than you, you get that, but if he's lower than you, you get this, and so forth. Um, they could get a pardon for themselves, and if they had ratted out someone high up in the brigand hierarchy, perhaps they could also get several comrades off as well. That is, quote, if they give into the power of justice, dead or alive, a bandit, they will be able to remit themselves and nominate another bandit as long as both the one and the other are of equal or lesser crimes than the condemned. Nifty. This plot had the obvious, was an obvious attempt to get brigands to betray one another and had the clear advantage of eliminating two bandits at once, the betrayed and the one who double-crossed him, who was now no longer a bandit, <clears throat> with no effort or expense on the part of the state. To encourage such underhanded dealings, papal administrators came up with a variety of ways that I won't go into here for the be betrayer to keep his identity secret and himself supposedly safe from revenge. It's not certain how many people, whether brigands or law-abiding villagers, took advantage of such offers. It is clear, in any case, that this kind of outsourcing by the state, getting its subjects and even its criminals to do its police work, made good sense and not just economically. 
Locals, after all, and bandits most of all, knew the complex scheme, both geographic and social, through which the outlaw bands moved. They also understood, far better than the authorities back in Rome, the, indi the indigenous clan dynamics and how these played off against the weak political structures that typically prevailed uh, in the outlying marginal parts of the papal states. Villagers and peasants were also more than anyone likely to have suffered the depredations and abuses of outlaws. Mixed with their fear and cupidity was often a desire for revenge. They might also be desperate enough, starvation after all was endemic in the hill towns around Rome, to find brigand hunting worth the obvious <coughs> risks. And indeed there were obvious risks. And not only during the hunting itself. Someone who murdered or betrayed a bandit for profit... Actually, I have a picture of... Okay, here we go. There's, here we go hunting. Um, brigand hunting for fun and profit. Um, who betrayed a bandit for profit may have been acting as Rome's tacit agent, but he was also exposed, operating at the anomalous overlap of state and private justice, and ultimately protected by neither as a government operative nor as a member of one clan at war with another, because in both cases there would be some sense of, of coverage, uh, but in this case, in fact, you have neither. Taking out a brigand could make the bounty hunter the target of both that outlaw's surviving band, if indeed the band... On the, on the so. diagram, uh, what's, what, what's the difference in status of the bandit that's hung by the neck versus by the... Oh, the tree you like that? <laughs> <laughs> this guy is enacting a tarot card, actually. No, I... Uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten that far with this, actually. I don't know. Although I imagine that the blood runs to your head in the latter case. Uh, that's well, it may be a course. That, I mean, that's had Mussolini. Yeah, yeah. And it's possible. Mm. Yeah, it's Mussolini, yeah. It, uh, it was... It, <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, what, you get in, what you get in a woodcut. Um, where was it? Now you've lost. Um, oh, taking a... Um, okay, a little... Yeah, you could be could also be, of course, uh, having taken out a bandit, become then the target of the bandit's clansmen who might seek their revenge, very likely, in fact. In the course of such vendettas, individuals, isolated farms, or indeed whole villages might get wiped out, wiped off the earth in reprisal. If it became known on the brigand circuit, which there was, that they had become too friendly with the locals' beauty, that is, they were known to be informers. It is important to keep in mind, of course, that locals were often happy to play the brigand card to further their own complex clan struggles over land, power, or prestige. Getting an enemy banished could mean also getting a free pass to killing, free from the reprisals of state justice, at least, even if only theoretically protected by the same authorities from retaliation of his vengeful relations. At the same time, as Michel Foucault has noted in a similar context, the state might use the right to violence that it asserted through its police or through the, these amateur agents, not only as a means to coerce and repress and restrain these supposed evildoers, but also as a primary strategy for inserting itself and its authority deeper within the social fabric. Uh, a whole another complicated argument. Uh, this is especially relevant in the context of brigandage, where so much violence was linked to questions of private justice, of honor, vendetta, uh, and where private or clan justice uh, the, this kind of justice that had flourished for centuries outside of state control was a fundamental characteristic of local society. The state, by projecting its law into the thick of questions of family honor and vengeance, was essentially positioned to rip apart all three of these basic pillars of human association, these ancient pillars that had prevailed in the papal states since classical Roman times. This is, in fact, well summed up in an edict issued by one of Sixtus V's legates in 1586, which especially urged bandits to kill any one of their own nearest relatives who were bandits, that is, their, quote, brothers, cousins, uncles, or any such, 
with the promise of generous rewards to those who did so. One diarist of the time observed, quote, no one has ever heard of such a strict edict against the bandits as this one, where a brigand will not be able to have trust in his own brother by blood, a great thing just to think of. Uh, in other words, it's an attempt to sort of pull apart the family uh, by inserting not only first the first way in is with essentially with these rewards, and the second way in is the state justice uh, that takes over uh, and removes clan justice uh, from the whole uh, from from the board entirely. What interests me though is that within certain parameters, we could call the Roman state a wholesale promoter of murder. Uh, its anti-brigand campaign explicitly inviting anyone who was so disposed to hunt down and, if possible, kill any of the hundreds of condemned men on the loose. Unquestionably, this policy greatly coarsened the already brutal and often violent social discourse characteristic of the era. Through language and the law, men and women were encouraged, indeed they were required to a certain extent, to see a fairly wide selection of their fellow beings as little more than game animals suitable for hunting. The ancient elements of loyalty to family and connection to land, which in this traditional society, society had mitigated or at least placed some boundaries on a Hobbesian existence, were treated by the papal authorities as impediments to their crusade, uh, suitable to be wiped away, as local and private justice were systematically undermined and replaced with a hybrid sort of state justice administered as often by local bounty hunters as by police officers. In such a climate of fear and greed, any outsider was liable to be accosted, pursued, and shot, uh, even before he could be posit positively identified as a brigand. When villagers heard reports of strangers hanging around in the nearby Machia, they might well do like Vir Virgilio Pupacchini, I like to call him Virgil, Virgil uh, and his young friends of the village of Core, uh, and go off on the hunt, as you see here. As, Vir as Virgilio later put it, quote, since one of us said he had seen them just that evening on the mountain of Kore, and they had some daggers, we decided to kill them and earn the reward. With some others, we went to the place to seek them, though we didn't find them. Good for him. The pervasive violence in the papal states and its degrading effects on human interaction could be, could be said to be incarnated in human heads. Since outlaws carried no other form of ID, it became necessary for any bounty hunter who wished to claim his reward to show up at the provincial capital with the heads of his victim or his victims in a sack. Well, we don't have it in a sack, but here's a nice picture of, um, of, a, of a head hunting. Uh, this is the <laughs> reasonable. Reason yeah, yeah, he's, he's gone to his reward, I guess, um, <laughs> as proof of his accomplishments. It was then the job of the local authorities to find someone who could reliably identify whose head it was. Sometimes this was a tricky business, since when they found, and I've seen this in some of the records, when they find someone who admits to knowing an outlaw, it rather begged the question, uh, how well did you know the outlaw and under what circumstances? <laughs> so the, the guy who testifies has to be rather cagey about this. Despite this apparent stigma, that is, of, of knowing him, heads became both common currency and symbolic markers in the papal states of the 16th century. Once they were properly identified and their collector paid off, they were usually stuck on poles or on the gratings of the most important monuments of town. Uh, most famously in the town that I know well, in Perugia, on this structure, the Fontana Maggiore, uh, beautiful 13th century fountain, uh, this is obviously a new grill around it. Now it used to be, I believe it used to be taller, but they used to put heads all around there. Uh, as This is right in front of the bishop's palace in the cathedral, right smack in the middle of town, uh, to uh, essentially act as warnings to other malefactors and as a sign to the citizenry, of course, that the state was doing its job. 
Random heads evidently became enough of a commonplace that when Silvia, wife of Pier Niccolo Gemelli, who was a village of Monteleone, found a couple of them in her cellar one morning, uh, supposedly placed there by someone, quote, who has always persecuted us, she simply ordered her young daughter, Camilla, quote, to take them back to the cemetery of San Pietro and put them together with the other heads of the dead that were in said cemetery. Young Camilla did just that, quote, obeying my mother, I threw them there inside the cemetery together with the other heads that are there. And I didn't take care to separate them out because I didn't think too much about it. So I guess on the way to school, you just take a few extra heads with you. (laughs) Whatever their deleterious social impact, the ferocious policies of Sixtus V and his immediate successors are credited by many historians with turning the tide against against the brigandage that for a while seemed about to destroy the papal states altogether. Yet though the bands themselves diminished in size and boldness, it would seem that honor, vendetta, and clan justice had the strength to weather this exterior threat. Over the following century or more, any sign of weakness from from Rome, but especially during the so-called sede vacante, that is the time between the death of one pope and the election of his replacement, any time and recrudescent brigandage would pop out all over the papal states. Even in normal times, revenge killings were still commonplace, and whole swaths of the backcountry, that's which I showed you there, especially the hills of Lazio, Umbria, and the marches, remained unsafe for merchants and travelers. The longest lasting results of Rome's anti-brigand campaign may well have been social ones, and these were far from all positive. The villagers and peasants who were dragged into the crusade seem to have been brutalized by the experience, learning to give little value, except cash value, to human life and receiving from the state little to replace the familiar contours of clan and village life, except for a marked increase in greed and paranoia. In the long run, Rome seems to have had more luck working with rather than against the grain of local honor. Many brigands were willing to take advantage of the state's periodic amnesty programs, which offered, perhaps in a moment of desperation, pardons for those who would serve for a decade or two in armies allied with the papacy, usually with imperial or Spanish forces against the Turks. Spending ten years or more fighting far from home against someone who everyone agreed was a common enemy gave an outlaw the chance to distinguish himself, earn reputation, and come home with a pension. It also seems to have been enough to drain the vitriol from even the most diehard of brigands, and those who, now pardoned, returned home were evidently disinclined to cause any further trouble in the Machia. Thanks. I did it, didn't I? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Don't resist it. Okay. Well, <laughs> what comes out for me is quite striking. That uh, I would say some were you know, straight out oppression, others involved exclusion or exile, mm-hmm. others involved isolation or effectively internal exile, uh, divide and conquer with the, the bando mm-hmm. operating as bounty hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I didn't hear were strategies employed by other societies at other times to deal with those outside the law, like rehabilitation, re-education, or even perhaps a little more cynically, co-optation strategies uh, of various sorts. The only thing that's remotely progressive would be gun control. You know, mm-hmm. Take away the wheel locks and only allow the match locks. Mm-hmm. And uh, since there were, there were many strategies they tried, 
but then many strategies that they did not. And I just wondered if you had any reaction or thoughts about Sure. Um, I think they, I think to a certain extent they did try um, a certain form of rehabilitation because the the notion of pardoning uh, and there's something I couldn't really get into here, but there's sort of an, an understrata here of the idea that uh, a brigand is someone who the state can say is no longer a brigand or no longer a bandit anyway. Just just pull that back, and that's that's implicit in this whole idea of of trading you know a capture for uh, and you could nom for, for nominating brigands. Um, the, also, the idea that people could be sent, could volunteer to go serve overseas in a foreign army uh, had that effect, too, of rehabilitation. But I would say that, that they sort of got hoisted on this, the power of their own campaign by, by constantly evoking the evil in these people. These were evildoers of evil. That it was, it became increasingly as something we see, I think, obviously today. It's difficult to back off from this then and say these are just people. And it seemed to me uh, it was ultimately easier to just say um, kill them, and it was it was more satisfying. It's interesting also to notice. I, I was looking for some illustrations. I stumbled back into a project that I'd done 20 years ago on the brigands. The last time I played with brigands. Um, Brigands uh, after the unification of Italy in the 1860s, and very much the same kind of campaign was waged. This, this, which still sort of poisons Italian relations north and south to this day. Uh, the Italian, the northern Italian government went into the south with big armies and just massacred people in tremendous, brutal ways uh, against what was called the Brigantaggio. Uh, this is like 1865, 18 thereabouts, and um, the 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 dehumanization and the demonization was very similar. Uh, there apparently is this reservoir. And so, as I say, it seemed to me difficult for them to back away from that and to use what would be the obvious, in, in, a, in a rehabilitative sense, an obvious move. And when you couple that, just to, to wrap up, with this, with this Foucaultian notion of, of this is, in fact, to a certain extent, consciously or not, a ploy to further penetrate to a state power into the periphery, uh, then there's not much motive to rehabilitate them, in a sense. Uh, uh, yeah. Actually, this follows on that. Mm. What's missing, it seems, are prisons. No, no, no. They have they have prisons in the countryside, but prisons are. Pris the, well, the banishment mm. basically makes no sense at all because everybody's banishing all their criminals in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. The criminals, so it doesn't matter. And I mean, they're going to defend themselves, right? As much as they can. So, and yeah. so they can't. They will not surrender because they know they're going to be killed. So consequently. So the point is, if you have prison, I mean, most criminals now surrender uh, Knowing uh, that. under those circumstances yeah. uh, because they won't be killed. So what they needed is prisons. Well, they don't, you know, they don't really have a concept of prisons as, as a long-term holding place except for the galleys. And the, when I, the galleys? Okay, the galleys are something that every European state operates at this point, uh, which is... Uh, they are they are men rowing in the galleys, and th that is war galleys, uh, and it's a really ratty existence. It's really terrible, and forced labor. forced labor. They send you to the galleys for a period of time, like a prison sentence, five years, ten years, whatever. Um, however, unlike a prison, perhaps you get in a battle and drowned, or get captured by the other side, or whatever, which means that your life can change very suddenly or end. But uh, it it had the function as much as there was any kind of prison system. That was it. Uh, the idea of when, when they, what they had in the way of jails, and they had them in Rome, uh, were simply places people were kept for brief periods of time, and then they were well, they were executed. The rise or, of the state is basically associated with the rise of prisons. Yeah, 
Yeah, we're civilized. Yeah, we're because you control criminals without having killed them. Never be very, very 18th century, and, really. And, and, and banishing is total craziness. Well, we get especially a great problem here. One thing that I had to leave out is that that Italy is initially, I mean, throughout the, the Renaissance and the medieval period, is is a whole congeries of of little city states, little little cities, communes, and all banishing. All banishing. Now, then, then it's easy because, see, like like Florence will be allied with uh, um, Luca against Siena, so you kick somebody out and they go to Siena and then they plot against you in that respect. Uh, but we get reach a point where uh, in the 16th century where all these the five major city-states have enlarged to the point where they're, they're bumping up against each other. There's no more Siena, for example. There's no place for these people to go. It's part of Florence. So they kick them out, and where do they go? Well, they go to Rome. Well, then the Romans kick them out, and they go back to Florence. They go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So part of the problem is, in fact, that there's no more sort of, sort of off territory to go to anymore. And, and people are forced into the Machia instead of going to, a, to another city. Yeah, but it's even worse than that, because then they're cut off from their own home. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of but they're, they're basically strangers. Yeah. Which means they really have to be criminals, and there's no social control because you can't get their families. And it becomes it's uh, even worse. one thing. It makes worse. Part of my study, I mean, a big this, the Mershon part of my study, the part that I'm presenting here, let's say, is it hopefully more of a political uh, science or sociological study. The, the 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 more anthropological part of the study is this culture of brigandage and what these people these people are really pissed off a lot, and that that accounts to some extent, for, I think, for their incredible predilection to violence, which is extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could the uh, differences which some people attribute nowadays to uh, so-called civil society in Northern Italy, its absence mm. in Southern Italy, mm, the mafiosi and stuff. And yeah. I'm not a fan of this, frankly. Mm. But, uh, could this have some origins in differences in different parts of Italy in, in these practices? Mm. It's it's uh, it's strongest in some ways where there are. Um, there were established uh, feudal lords willing to back these people up for their own advantage against the power of the state, against the against Rome in this case. Uh, but that also, and that holds true in Naples. So it's where there are the strongest feudal lords. But there are also strong feudal lords in the north, like in Lombardy and stuff. So um, there was a serious brigand problem in the north in this period. Uh, I think this was the worst, but but I haven't I haven't done a, a cross Italian study. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. I would think that it's kind of um, it's kind of ubiquitous, actually, and so the, the problem and the problem was mostly solved in a similar fashion: kill the brigands in uh, any way possible. Uh, yeah. Was yeah. this problem of brigands sort of typical of all the rest of Europe at this time? Yeah. So yeah. There was, a, for instance, there was this really serious. I didn't know this. And uh, that I'm not absolutely sure of. I know that. It's about the same time, and it has a lot to do with uh, the, the period of peace associated with uh, after Catocambrasis and up through the 17th century. Uh, there's, it's really bad, for example, in southern Holland. That's what Anton Bloch has studied uh, at great length. Um, it was also true in parts of France. It's true in Spain. Uh, large areas of Spain are just unpassable. Uh, it represents uh, an attempt to basically, um, and it's, you know, as Braudel says, it's sort of, other side is is uh, piracy in the high seas. Yeah, the, the political scientist uh, approach to this might be see how the different regions dealt with these problems. Now, who was mm. successful? And how, I don't know if you yeah, yeah. Mm. worked on that. Was the Italian reaction similar to the other states? This is I have not I've not been able to do that, and I certainly intend to because it's uh, it seems very 
significant. Um, I mean, it's a problem. I mean, famous, all the famous English highwaymen, it's obviously clear in the 18th century. Well, but later, Dick Turpin, people. Uh, another interesting thing is all, in all these countries, I can't read them in Dutch, but uh, all these countries wrote ballads about them and stuff. And I have this big collection of Italian ballads now about brigands. Was, they become folk heroes in their own way. Well, at least the pictures I showed you there of the, the head and stuff, those are the front page of a, of a ballad. So, so, yeah. Yeah, there is definitely, uh, it's something that has been looked at, and there is definitely a brigandage problem in Venice. Uh, it partly has to do, I think, with any state, and this happens a lot in the, in the 16th century, in the first half of the 16th century, these various states either, in the case of Venice, retake lost possessions uh, that are taken away, from, that are lost in wars, or in the case of the Papal States, they start reasserting control over places that are technically theirs, that is, they're technically feudatories, like the city of Perugia, that has essentially been free for 200 years, and only in the 1530s did they come back, pound the Perugini back into the ground. And the Venetians had the same problem, uh, and it's sorting out the, the political thing um, in, in the periphery that's a real... Um, difficulty, and I don't know how much trade has to do with it, also because at the same time the Venetians are trying to develop their, their hinterland uh, with investments, huge investments in farming and stuff, so I'm not sure. I haven't really, as, as I sort of say, I haven't, I've been sort of staying away from the economic side of things for the moment, because it's a, it's a huge social issue, uh, and, and there are books, in fact, that, have, you know, that study just all the different parts of Italy in, the, in that context, in the context of Brigandage, so... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, very interesting presentation. I was struck by how many, on so many different layers, parallels there are to contemporary and or other historical mm. happenings. Well, one that struck me in particular was um, the, the reconcentrado policy they were employing mm -hmm. people out of the countryside. Mm. Well, the, um, the, there, there's certainly some success. Uh, there's uh, the, the level of, of chaos that, that reigned in the 1570s and 1580s, as can be, you can trace it through the edicts, in fact, which uh, not just ones like this, a printed bondo, that's from the, um, the uh, 16, was it 1608, I think. Uh, but 
stuff which is only exists, I don't know, handwritten stuff, I don't know whether it was announced publicly or what, which delineates specific bandits saying, this guy's done this and this, and therefore we're going to do this and this against him. And, you know, um, those are really dense on the ground in the 1570s and 1580s, and they taper off, and you don't see them much anymore. It seems to me that they managed to get it on down to a, you know, you can sort of compare a, a real plague, a disease plague, and you get it down to something which is just in, endemic. It's like it's a problem, but it's no longer. Uh, they, they they learn to live with it, basically. I I don't know. I have not been able to do this long enough, and I've, as you can see, mostly concentrated on the worst period because that's the most fun in in this whole context. And what I need to do, obviously, is follow it up. Uh, and my the the title of my study is basically 1550 to 1650 because I think that's a reasonable cutoff. Follow it up uh, and see uh, what traces still remain. Of there. I do know that, that um, there's this fantastic source of, of trials. The, the, the girl with the heads, for example, is in this collection of trials, or depositions more than trials, they're called processi, uh, that are indexed. And you can see in the indexes it says uh, banditi, 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 you go through there. And it's someone's been through this monster thing, the indices, up through 1600, and they continue apace. Uh, and so I have to go through and see how they follow up. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think there's some success. Why there's some success, I'm not absolutely sure. I guess there's, there's two ways to think of, to ask the question about success. One is whether they're actually successful in curbing bandits. The other sort of element of success I was impressed with is whether uh, they're actually successful in getting people to follow up on these edicts, you know, turning your family members, mm -hmm. you know, act upon the legislation that's passed, or the yes. being posted on the walls and no one's doing anything about it. That's the one I'm more interested in as well, because, as I say, this idea that they managed to outsource their police work, they managed to draft all these people into this, that it becomes, as I found in another one of these, Prochessi, Virgil and his friends, it becomes kind of, let's, you know, instead of going to the, to the drive-in movie, let's go hunt some brigands. It sounds like sort of an evening's way to amuse yourself. And if this becomes really saturated in the local culture, I find that fascinating, and I'm really interested in that. That would imply success, but at a, at a high cost, I think, a high social cost. Um, and that's what, and that would take, a, it will take a lot of on-the-ground study of these, of these, this village life, something that no one's ever done. Uh, people in Italy, Italian history, don't like to do villages. How would you, do you have a sense of how you might get at that question, what, what, in terms of sources? And that I have to use, these trials are the best thing going. They're, they're lengthy testimonies of people like Virgil who, who tell what their experience was. Actually, Virgil was testifying because he was accused of helping brigands. You weren't going to hunt brigands. You were just out there to take them aid, someone said. So, you know, the whole complexity of this thing. But every village has its own tiny sort of micro-politics going on also, which is extremely depressing. Uh, yeah? Wouldn't one mean to try to find these documents in a sense where the norm was changing? Was the rationale for Was it, in fact, a night's fun, or was it, in fact, this notion of keeping some sort of order or... And and how much how much um, there reaches a certain a certain point a shared culture 
uh, an anti-Brigham culture. I mean, I do have other examples of, because I only had time to look at, at uh, three or four of these, these big, big bundles of, of cases, where, um, you know, the, the villagers, uh, the word gets out, and they all charge out together. They hear there's some brigand at the gate, and they all go after them. The brigands scatter every which way, and they chase them down and stuff. Um, it all sounds very exciting. You know, it sounds like it, it becomes... Um, it becomes an important part of their lives, and it's also a great sense of success. But whether they feel, you know, properly recompensed for what they do, I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, especially given the genocide threat. It's, mm. it's, it's not a, a riskless... No, no, not, no, not at all. That suggests that there's success in branding these, effectively branding right. these people as Caucasians. Yeah, that, I, I take that as... I take that as, as I think they went beyond mere rhetoric in, in their use of language here to, to brand these people. I think their enthusiasm is impressive in the names they thought up to call them. It's a, yeah. yeah well, I was kind of curious, you said it, the, the, maybe the height of Brigham in this sense, it was 1550 60s. Mm. Uh, and I sort of waxed and waned for a history that's always been there before that. And it was, was, it the, was the circle lock, the circle, the circle uh, wheel lock. Circle wheel gun. Yeah. Uh, we push the peaks, right? I would... I believe that that's part of it, that, that, uh, that peace, peace is notorious for this problem in the, in the early modern era. So you have, you have that, the gun feeding the, uh, the rise of range and the state response probably feeding the consolidation of states and the third thing is the consolidation which is you know and, and it's like Perugia is this good example 1530 uh, and it, it takes a good 15 years basically 200 or more years of, of essential liberty in Perugia is stomped out to the extent that they build this huge fortress right on the on top of the town uh, that is the papal fortress and the guns characteristically point towards the city not out and that's what it's there for, to control the town. And then 200 years of liberty is taken away. Uh, and that, what holds true for the city, holds true for every single feudatory around the city. And all these people are now under control in, in a more real way. And I think that's the other element. And that's, so there's kind of a, and that's one of the other ways that, that, that uh, the state creates brigands. Is that, and there are, there are two or three famous men who were nobles who lead brigand bands. These guys are the guys with the great big rewards on their heads. These guys are the real Zorro types who are out there, who are famous uh, and whose escapades. One of them comes down from Siena, in fact. He's, he's related to one of the popes. Piccolomini is his name, little man. And uh, he, he leads these, these uh, major, these are major gangs, two, 3,000 guys. Uh, and these are, these are um, signed. This, this, it's this kind of thing I think that seriously threatens the state. And I guess I have to say that, that the success is partly to find ways to diffuse the attraction of, of nobles, rural nobles, uh, from brigadage, to pull them apart and to get them. But it's clear that in the 1630s this was still going on. The great Italian novel, uh, The Betrothed, Promessi Sposi by Alessandro Manzoni, deals specifically with brigandage in the 1630s. Uh, so it isn't over. Uh, the question is, I mean, it's sort of like they declared victory and went home, and they didn't win. It was just like, that's it. Okay, forget it. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it's hard to avoid that. You know, it's a, yeah.
No, I haven't found it, but I would be very, I would certainly not be surprised to find it. I would certainly not be surprised at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, a head is, first you got to get the head there when it's still fresh. I mean, you know, you want to, uh, and, and it starts to get kind of, kind of falling apart. I just, I just saw this in Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, you know, you get, you get, you don't have much to go by. It's Jeffrey Rush. I don't know. Uh, and so, so it seems to me, and also it's interesting that this one quote I gave you, the, the, the edict says, um, they're not wearing the clothes they're supposed to, essentially. You know, there's obviously a way that brigands are supposed to. I mean, there, is, there was a way brigands wore their hats sideways and cut off one of their mustaches and things like this. They, they, they had a way to dress. You know, they put their hat on backwards. Uh, and, there's, and so if you don't dress right, you know, and apparently um, the state kind of was flummoxed if you didn't. So. Um, this is this I can find out because I do see lots of things where people say uh, we heard it was so and so we heard it was so and so's gang uh, and so we went after him and then but the, the two that I saw like that it really was so and so probably if it isn't they're not going to talk about it they're going to keep real quiet uh, it's kind of embarrassing uh, we killed this guy and it turned out he was just you know but one way you try and do that is you know it's kind of do a Soviet thing where everybody has to have papers. Uh, and consequently, but then you can forge the papers. It's not that hard, it seems to me. Uh, just yeah, just one more, two more. Is that okay? Yeah. Are we are we running late? Yes. Yeah. Two questions. First is about about the wheel. You said that the Hamasek band is of wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that also applies to the type of army, basically. I mean, they are even just not the type of power. Well, not disarm, but but go down to matchlocks. Stupid, yeah. Well, that was what they said they were going to do, but as far as I can tell, they never did it. Uh, there's a long there's a long discourse somebody wrote saying, well, all the princes will realize how important it is. All the princes that is of Naples and so forth will voluntarily go back. Eh, I mean, that's, you know, that's just dreaming. Uh, and they didn't, as far as I can tell. And the second thing is also about, I mean, it's not happening with the, with the last, uh, last year, so it's about the, the novels, the individual, the individual. I just wonder, like, how the status, how the class is affected, I mean, the punishment. Basically, I mean, whether the ones that they, 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 they get the, the head and then put it in, in on the tight arm, you know, the lower, just low type of religion, or whether they are like, Oh yeah! Oh, you you really want to get the noble brigand if you can. That's the best head of all. Uh, you they, they, when they have when they captured some of these big names. Let's, let's say there are there are half a dozen of them that really stand out that were there were nobles and known. Then you got sundry knights and so forth who aren't quite nobles. When you get one of those guys, they put the head up where you can see it. It's it's in a most important place. It's a, it's a big deal. Where? Sorry? Indonesia. Indonesia. Mm. But there's a huge kind of problem, basically, and the government decided that they will send a special sniper unit to, in, to the city. They just shoot suspected brigands. Basically, they just shoot all of them randomly, and mm-hmm. the next morning, people see it like they are like, you know, their bodies coughed, being shot, and point blank inside the river. And they say, oh my god, this is the government's like, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not. But some states, it is also kind of op- kind of political, you know, political move action. Basically, they don't target everyone. Mm. Just, just type of that in order to destroy the progress of one. Well, 
in a sense, they do target everyone, I would say, because they want to, you know, to teach a lesson to the others. You might be tempted to be a brigand. Now you're less tempted to be a brigand because they just shot five of them right around you. So I think I'll go do something else with my life. You know. So that I think actually they are targeting everyone. Uh, that's what I think is so modern in some ways about the papal states is that they're, they're thinking in a, in a kind of a, I mean, modern in the sense that the way that they're doing it in Indonesia, if you, if you want to call that modern, they are, they are actually uh, doing a 20th century kind of uh, terror campaign, seems to me. That's what I like about it, in a way. <laughs> sorry, but... <laughs> okay, I guess that's all. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh,